26th Climate Change Conference in Glasgow sought to rally global efforts to reduce carbon emissions needed to fight climate change and has prompted countries to commit to more ambitious climate actions. However, implementation challenges remain, particularly in fast-growing, highly climate-vulnerable developing countries in Asia and the Pacific. In this podcast, ADBI's Dina Shkayeva and Frank Wallach of Stanford University explain how developing Asia and the Pacific can achieve measurable progress toward carbon neutrality after COP26 by advancing the region's clean energy transition while relying less on public subsidies. The discussion helps to set the tone for the 2021 ADBI annual conference on December 1st to 3rd, which will feature insights from leading researchers on the next steps for climate change mitigation and green finance policy in developing Asia and the Pacific. Hi, Dina, Professor Wallach. Welcome to Asia's Developing Future. To start things off, can you explain the biggest obstacles to effective climate change mitigation in developing Asia and the Pacific? I would say the big thing is the fact that these are, in many instances, developing countries rapidly growing, and modern energy services are a major factor in stimulating economic growth and as well as fostering economic growth. What they rely on is, unfortunately, coal-fired power plants to obtain that energy historically. This is also what the United States relied on and Western economies as well relied on. The only difference is, is that at the time that they made their transition to industrialized countries, we didn't know about the impact of greenhouse gas emissions. So the big challenge, I'd say, is how to allow these countries to develop and grow with minimal climate impacts. How much harder is it for developing Asia to achieve that balance? Energy demand is growing very fast in developing Asia due to population growth, due to economic growth. And another challenge is that developing Asia is vulnerable to climate change. So there are sea level changes and floods and droughts, which means that developing Asia will need to work harder while tackling this energy demand growth and climate change challenges. They will need to work on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. How can Asia's developing countries grow using less coal and more clean energy? Over the past decade, probably the last five years, we've seen a rapid decline in the levelized cost of wind and solar resources relative to the cost of, say, a new coal-fired power plant or cost of a new natural gas-fired unit. The cost hit that you will take in trying to do that with renewables will be significantly less than it has been historically. So in that sense, you're going to be able to at least get lower carbon sources of electricity for cheaper in that process. Are there any emerging climate technologies that could support the region's energy transition? One of the things that certainly is attracting a lot of attention in the area of climate mitigation is carbon removal technology, so what would be called direct air capture. There's been a number of facilities that are planned. There's even a facility that's operating the Orca facility in Iceland. Granted, it's quite small, but you have to start somewhere. That's a very promising development in the very recent past, and I think there is more activity in the United States on this as well and other parts of the world. So that's a new area that I think is a reason for some optimism. The big issue is that you need essentially a revenue stream for that. That's where I think pricing carbon comes in and helps to make those sorts of investments more economic. 
Wind and solar cost competitiveness have happened so fast. So what's the investment outlook for new climate technologies? The number of investors who care about climate change mitigation and adaptation are growing more and more in corporates and international organizations. So countries can attract investments from private investors who got targets for investing in climate change mitigation. Many of the technologies, like the one Professor Wallach just mentioned, are still immature stage, early stage of research and development and demonstration. Such early stage of research and development usually rely more on public funds than on private funds. I think that's the challenge for these immature technologies. More mature technologies like solar panels and wind turbines already are better at attracting private investments, but less mature technologies will rely more on public funds for research and development and demonstration. What are your recommendations for immediate policy action among governments in Asia and the Pacific seeking to increase their share of renewable energy? My policy recommendation would be don't focus on renewable energy. Instead, focus on limiting your use of coal, develop and be a part of the global LNG market. So if instead of the 200 coal units built in Asia, you're having roughly that same amount, say, of natural gas fired units, that is real significant carbon savings. You can fill in with renewables as much as you can. I think they are cost competitive for many regions, but you still need dispatchable generation in systems to keep the lights on. I can add the financing part of this. Just financing amount of funds is not important. It's also important the quality of use of these funds, especially now during COVID-19 that public funds are constrained. It's important to keep the use of funds effective, efficient, and to have quality projects. For example, to make sure that projects actually lead to greenhouse gas emission reduction. Such quality of projects will attract more private investment, especially if accommodated with transparency and credibility. How can the region move forward from using public funds and attract more private investment into the renewable energy market? We are in a new regime for renewables, and that is a regime where the levelized cost of renewables is very similar, if not in many instances below the levelized cost of, say, a new natural gas or coal-fired facility. This suggests, to me at least, that what we want to do is change how we think about financing and paying for these units. In other words, we no longer need to have implicit subsidies in how we actually actually fund and build these facilities. Can you unpack that a bit more? One of the major funding vehicles for renewables is what are called paid as produced contracts or often called power purchase agreements. Those, I think, are fine in the early stages when you have a very small amount of renewables, but as you get a larger amount of renewables, you have the renewable owner be uninterested in actually managing the intermittency, which is then really becomes the so-called tail wagging the dog as opposed to the dog wagging the tail in the sense that you have a tremendous problem with keeping lights on, as we're seeing in places like California, Texas, where we have very large shares of intermittent renewables, you need to build in incentives for these renewable resources to manage their intermittency and, if you like, internalize the costs that they impose on the system. Renewables are grown up. It's time for them to behave like any other source of energy in the market. And that's how we're going to get the most amount of renewables into the market by precisely treating them like the other technologies. To wrap up, can you explain how developing countries in Asia and the Pacific can do that? 
what we want to build into the market is a incentive for what I like to call cross-hedging. You, as a intermittent renewable resource, you can produce a lot of energy at zero marginal cost. You, as a thermal generator, you can produce energy when you want to, but that's very expensive and it has greenhouse gases. What we want to try to do is build in this relationship or incentive to cross-hedge where the renewable resource buys reliability from the dispatchable resource to keep the dispatchable resource around because it ideally would never run, but it still needs to be there in case it has to run. And then most of the time, the energy is being produced from the intermittent resource, but the dispatchable resource is there in case the renewable disappears. And, you know, in other words, you're getting the benefit of risk pooling in the sense that the intermittent produces energy, lots of it, and very cheap. The dispatchable produces when you want, quite expensive, but both are necessary uh, to keep the lights on. This has been Asia's Developing Future, brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute. For more information about us, visit ADB.